Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knoth. Hello, hello. I want to start this week's show with a little bit of a victory lap. I'm going to try and not strain my shoulder, patting myself on the back. <laughs> uh, two weeks ago, uh, you may recall that we closed the show with a discussion about the various misadventures of the FTX investor attorneys in their attempts to serve Shaquille O'Neal with legal yep. papers. You can go back and listen to that. That was two episodes ago for a fuller rundown, but they were having trouble serving Shaq with papers. He was ducking them at one point. Then uh, Shaq's lawyers said that they just threw documents at his moving car, which doesn't constitute proper service and all that. And I closed that segment with a little bit of like an offhanded comment, really, saying that Shaq works for TNT. He works on Inside the NBA, and he brought and he bet that show airs like every other night during the playoffs. And I said they should just go to the set and serve him. Now, I mean, I threw a disclaimer in there that I'm not a legal, you know, services professional by any stretch of the imagination. And I was kind of just shooting from the hip on that. Sure enough, this week, they literally went to the set of Inside the NBA, which because there's only four teams left, is on location from where the Miami Heat play their home games, and they serve Shaq right there in the arena, as I said. Alex. And they didn't even fly you down? I know. I mean, I assume my It was your idea. This is, this is truly a coup. Um, it and is. And also, way more powerful people are listening to Pro Se than I realized. Like, what great news. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I said, I said go to the studio, and they, and the, and you know, this is functionally the same thing because that now becomes the studio because mm -hmm. that's where they're broadcasting from. So, like I said, I, I presume my check is in the mail and uh, I'll be eagerly awaiting that. Although maybe I thought now that I'm saying that, I think I did say that one was on the house. So You did. You did. You did. So that right, well, oral contract, you're not getting you know, All right. Okay. Well, let this be a lesson that we cannot give our services away for free. That's a good point. And uh, I didn't really think anything would come of that. But uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know. Well, let's keep the hits coming with the things that the Pro Se hosts say this week. And let's do that by having an all-host show because we have uh, quite a few news items to get to. All hosts, all the time. What <laughs> else will we solve today? What else? <laughs> I'm going to kick things off, though, because, folks, Alec Murdaugh is back in the news cycle. He is already serving life in prison for murdering his wife and son. But as you may recall, prosecutors said the killings were an attempt to divert attention from investigations into allegations that he stole from his law firm and clients. And this week, Murdaugh was formally charged federally for those alleged schemes. Prosecutors hit him with a 22-count indictment alleging bank and wire fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering. Absolutely the terrible crime he committed did not detract from his other crimes, the financial variety. So yeah, let this be a lesson. The uh, the approach doesn't work, folks. It certainly doesn't and is also just deeply terrible. But let's go back. I mean, I think most people know who this person is and, and what he did because it was so televised. But let's give a few beats on what happened at his trial. Yeah, there are a couple helpful highlights for going into this indictment news. So Murdaugh is a 54-year-old former personal injury lawyer, and he comes from a very wealthy and powerful family of attorneys in South Carolina. 
In early March, a South Carolina jury convicted Murdaugh of killing his wife and their younger son at their estate. And that happened in June 2021. So during the trial, Murdaugh actually took the witness stand and he admitted to stealing and lying to colleagues. Um, But he said he was a devoted husband and father and his financial pressures were long-term and were not coming to a head at the time of the murders. So he was denying the killings, but jurors ultimately um, convicted him, as I said. Jurors also during the trial heard from his former colleagues at the law firm, including some who said they took out loans and paid out of pocket to make things right for clients whose money had been taken. Um, It's important to also note that Murdaugh is already facing a whole bunch of state charges related to his financial crimes, Um, but this new indictment is from the feds. Um, And if you want to hear more about Murdaugh's case, we did talk about it on the show. That was in episode 287. So check that out for a full refresher. You already mentioned that Murdaugh took the stand in the murder trial and basically admitted to doing any number of shady business dealings, which are, of course, second order to the violent crime of killing your family. Um, but there, there is sort of justice to meet out on a bunch of different fronts here. What exactly is in this week's indictment from the feds? Yeah, prosecutors say Murdaugh had a few different schemes going. In one, he directed law firm employees to draft disbursement sheets and then sent client money to accounts that he owned And of course, he did this without the approval of clients or his law firm. Um, He also allegedly intercepted insurance payouts meant for beneficiaries. Um, In another scheme, he had firm employees making checks for settlements payable to Palmetto State Bank. And then he gave those checks to his personal banker and asked the banker to use those funds to pay off Murdaugh's own personal expenses. And then also, according to the indictment, He allegedly funneled the money he stole from his clients through a bank account that he created for a bogus insurance settlement structuring firm, which he named, perhaps appropriately, Forge. (laughs) Um, And he... That is a word with a lot of different meanings, you know. It can mean... (laughs) Exactly. It can mean to fake something. It can mean (laughs) to cast something out of fire. Read into it what you will. Exactly. There we go. Uh, He also allegedly conspired with another personal injury lawyer to steal millions of dollars in settlement payouts from Murdaugh's housekeeper's estate after she died. Something to note uh, on that one is she died after a fall at Murdaugh's house. Yeah, it's really interesting that that fall you talk about, Haley, is heavy in all of the sort of true crime style documentaries we've gotten in in the recent weeks. That's definitely in there if people are interested in learning more about that detail. But I'm curious about what the Murdoch camp has said about this. Has he come out with any statement? I mean, it seems fairly cut and dry that if you admit to some of these crimes as part of a separate trial, there's not a lot left to say about it, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. They did issue a short statement. It was What you would expect, his lawyer said, basically, he's been cooperating with the U.S. Attorney's Office and other federal agencies. They did say they anticipate the charges to be, quote, quickly resolved without a trial. So I have to assume, you know, that means perhaps a plea is coming. Definitely something to watch in the coming weeks. 
I would like to pivot us pretty hard here to something we don't always talk about on Pro Se, and that's judicial nominations. This one, uh, actually two developments, seem pretty notable. That's why I want to bring it up today. It's been a pretty bad week for the Biden administration because not one, but two of their picks have withdrawn from consideration. Oh, look, I've taken some media news story construction classes in my day. And the old saying, of course, is that three is a trend. We're not there, but given the close cluster of these two nominees dropping out in less than a week and the sensitive you know, political nature of these fights, these spots are highly coveted. Any information we can glean would probably be useful. Let's start with who are these nominees and, and what spots were they nominated for and what do we need to know? Look, I may not be the New York Times style section with three items to make a trend, but you're right. <laughs> the, the close timing of this, I think, is what makes it really stand out. And it, it's sort of like a little microcosm of something we don't often talk about in Pro Se, which is how fraught these judicial nominations and getting through the confirmation process can be. So like you said, Alex, I'll just go through each one kind of briefly what happened. Michael Arthur Delaney withdrew his name from consideration for a seat on the First Circuit late last week. He did that just hours after the Senate Judiciary Committee scrapped a scheduled vote on whether to send his nomination to the full chamber. Delaney had served as New Hampshire's Attorney General from 2009 to 2013, and he went on to become a director and shareholder at the law firm McLean Middleton. If you're wondering why his nomination process had gone so slowly and sort of stalled out and didn't get that vote that to, to get it out of committee, he had received a lot of backlash from Republican senators over his defense of St. Paul's School in a lawsuit filed by the parents of a minor girl who'd been sexually assaulted by another student. In that lawsuit, it was claimed that the school had failed to meet its obligations to protect students and it came after the student was convicted of the sexual assault. So his actions around that suit defending the school raised a lot of ire among Republicans. Also, a group of economic, political, and legal um, advocates sent a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee expressing concerns about his history of, quote, hostility toward victims, um, reproductive and employee rights, and also that he has... Um, what they would characterize as opposition to government regulation. Okay, so I can see where that one kind of perhaps uh, uh, caused some issues. But yeah, what about I mean, the... Before I even turn to the next one, Haley, you can see where that causes some issues because everything I listed that was sort of checked in that letter, just hot button political stuff. So this really was oh, a bit yeah. of a policy fight. So what about the second nominee or former nominee, I should say? <laughs> former nominee, indeed. So Biden's pick for a seat on the federal district court in Kansas was Assistant U.S. Attorney Jabari Womble, and he withdrew his name Tuesday following, you guessed it, a lengthy nomination process. So Biden first picked Womble for a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, but his nomination was not among those that were resubmitted to the U.S. Senate at the start of the year after failing to win confirmation last year. Then in February, the White House announced his nomination to the federal bench in Kansas. So trying another route. In his withdrawal letter, Womble said he was, of course, grateful to be nominated, but basically said he had decided to focus his work uh, back at the U.S. Attorney's Office instead and just get out of this lengthy process. That is a fact pattern you do see from time to time. It happens to have come up against the withdrawal of another nominee if they're not, they're clearly not related here. But the idea of like, if you kind of get ground up in the politics of it, 
And then you decide, is it really worth it for all of this? And let's just go back to what I was what I was doing before. And also that one in particular, he'd had a couple cracks at this, like waiting to see what would happen, hoping it would go through, I would presume. And it didn't work. They tried a whole different bench that too got slowed down. So I can see how that would become pretty frustrating. Yeah. And you, you have to conduct yourself a certain way when you're like in terms of your commercial activity and like all your disclosures and things like that. And like when you're waiting confirmation and when that stuff carries on for longer, it just gets more difficult. I'm not saying that was the case here, but it, I, I have heard that come up in different contexts when people would Yeah. Draw. I mean, I have no real insight into what these individuals were thinking, but yeah. just on a personal level, I think about those times in my career where you've applied to your new job and you yeah. had a great interview and you think you're going to get the offer, but you're waiting for it. And you kind of feel checked out at your old job. So that is a weird <laughs> world to be living in. It's a weird gray zone. So I could see how if that mm-hmm. lasts too long, it can wear some people down. And of course, as I stated at the top of the segment, the race to fill these seats, especially appellate court seats, you know, is, is very closely watched. And I do think it's it would be useful here. We've just had a little, I don't know, micro trend or, how, or whatever we want to call it. I want to take stock of what kind of pace the Biden administration is on as far as filling judicial vacancies. Are they doing it quickly or slowly or somewhere in between? Or what do we, what can we say? Yeah, this makes a lot more sense in context, of course. So President Trump, as an example, he really reshaped the federal judiciary. He seated, of course, three Supreme Court justices, 54 circuit judges, and more than 170 district judges. That's a tremendous numbers on the board there. Biden took office with actually the fewest judicial vacancies for a new president since 1989. But quickly, about 50 judicial retirement announcements rolled in, and that gave him a lot more opportunity to appoint judges. So far, 34 of Biden's U.S. Circuit Court picks have been confirmed, and 93 district court picks have been confirmed. So if you're a nerd like me and those numbers are intriguing to you, I think you really got to go over to our website. I mean, I know I'm always shouting out the good work that our colleagues are doing, but we have a tracker that keeps track of judicial nominations and confirmations through the whole process. So you can kind of see the stats about how that's going and what is still vacant. I really recommend people check it out. Last week, Montana became the first state in the union to block the popular social media app TikTok from operating within its borders, citing concerns over the Chinese government's purported ability to access user data. And sure enough, the litigation floodgates have opened quickly as both the app and its users have sued the state for what it called an unconstitutional expansion of its authority. The new suits mark the latest inflection point in the country's protracted struggle with whether and how to limit the reach of the immensely popular app, which may now play out on the state level instead of the federal one. Um, So lots to go over here. Uh, This has been at the forefront of a lot of different stories, but now we do have some some legal tussles to uh, to break down. Have we discussed on the show before whether the three of us are TikTok users? We did, I think. Before you uh, joined our cohort here, which I'm I'm going to discuss later when uh, the Trump administration made a a play to do so, because there are some lessons to be taken from that. I'm not, I've decided to limit my digital 
existences, so I am not. Um, I'm but, surprised. I, I would describe myself more of a TikTok lurker. lurker. Yeah. yeah, like I technically <laughs> have an account and uh, follow a couple, not many, but yeah, it's uh, not heavy usage. Yeah, I would say I'm I'm about the same. I get TikToks end up on Twitter and Instagram anyway, they do. so they sure do. I mean, <laughs> given our we're we're very lax stance here on TikTok, so let the listeners know, be aware of that. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about to kind of get into this, Alex, Montana surprises me as the state that's done this. I mean, usually when we talk about vanguard states, we're saying yeah. you know California did something, uh, New York maybe, Illinois. I'm a little surprised that Montana is the one out of the gate. What have they done here? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I just, you know, for whatever reason, I, you know, call it a it's, a, it's a relatively smaller population. So it's maybe easier to acquire political will to do something as drastic and unprecedented as this. But what you need to know is that last week, the Republican governor in Montana, Greg Gianforte, he signed a bill that bans TikTok from operating in the state. And he said that he basically described the app as a tool for the Chinese government to spy on Americans. And the bill basically bars TikTok from being um, you know, hosted on any app store and uh, threatens very hefty fines and other penalties for any tech company that, that violates that ban. But he did stress that there are no penalties against specific users of the app. I mean, if you, found, if you were to find a way around it or something, it is more aimed at the sort of corporate structure that allows TikTok to, to flourish. And as I said, Montana is the first state to take such an aggressive action against the app, even though it's been sort of in the political crosshairs for many years now. And really the unprecedented nature of that move was really at the top of a lot of these lawsuits that soon followed. Yeah, I want to get into the particulars of these suits, but I also want to note, I realize this is not at all what anyone means when they say China is gleaning information from Americans, but I love picturing the Chinese government like watching me watch like a raccoon in a <laughs> stroller or something. Yeah. I know that's not the point, but I I like that uh, mental image. But yeah, anyway. They're, they're just learning that all of us really love watching things be decanted into containers in your kitchen. Yeah, I don't know. Stuff exactly. like that. What the hell Power are you guys talking? Power washing videos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of avenues to go down, Alex. <laughs> you guys are, you guys have brain disease. I don't know what's happening here. Anyway, this is about true. the lawsuits. About the lawsuits. <laughs> about the lawsuits. All right. So a- as we uh, record today on Thursday, there are two main ones that we're keeping an eye on. So just the day after the governor signed this bill, Montana got sued by a series of like content creators and sort of power users of TikTok. And they basically say that Montana, the state of Montana has no legal authority to assess potential national security threats, which basically are the entire pretense of this bill. The users also basically made a pretty, uh, pretty cut and dried First Amendment violation claim. They basically said the government is stepping in and stifling this channel for communication, which has emerged as a way that a lot of people get news and learn about the world or learn about how to unclog a drain or whatever you guys do on that app. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, um, that was the the basic contours of the user's lawsuit. A couple days after that, TikTok itself, the company, made a lot of similar constitutional claims, but also poked holes in Montana's 
stated reason for enacting the law. The company said that the state has not provided any support for the allegations that the app exposes minors to harmful content or that the Chinese government can or regularly does access user data. It says that those are just kind of scare tactics that government officials throw out without much evidence and that you need to, if you're going to take serious administrative actions, they need to be based in some concrete evidence. Uh, The company also said that it does have safeguards in place to protect user data, so any concerns about that are overblown. So those are just kind of the two basic shapes of those lawsuits. Well, we've seen people in Washington, too, talking about the perceived ills of TikTok and China's alleged spying through that platform. So wasn't there a time when the federal government was also considering a ban like this? Tell me about what happened there. Yeah, you you may recall, and it is tough to keep a lot of this straight in your head, but former President Donald Trump, late in his administration, I think this was around like in the summer of 2020, basically attempted to ban the app through executive order and cited similar national security concerns that I've already laid out here about user data security and things like that. Now, that got tied up, uh, much like now with this Montana bill, that was tied up in litigation from both TikTok, the company, and several of its prominent users. And the the lesson to take away from those lawsuits um, is that while courts traditionally give plenty of leeway to the president when he acts based on national security interests, two different federal judges actually ruled to stop Trump's TikTok ban. Now, I do want to say those were just preliminary rulings. Those were on injunctions. And those judges basically said that the app could stay active while the suits proceeded on the merits. Um, so those aren't definitive findings in terms of the, the uh, on the merits of those cases. But even early stage rulings were pretty significant. Now, those suits were rendered moot when Joe Biden was elected and he basically withdrew all of Trump's executive orders relating to TikTok. So, but crucially, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., that's known as CFIUS, which you might, uh, if you're a succession head like we are, that's gotten two straight uh, mentions on succession in recent weeks. Oh, Alex, that, have you been thrilled by that? Because that's yeah, just nice. so in your wheelhouse. CFIUS is a, um, is a government committee. It's led by the Treasury Department that operates largely in secret because it examines security threats posed by foreign companies that operate in the United States. And one thing that I completely uh, had forgotten is that CFIUS is still reviewing TikTok's potential security threats. That's been going on for over two years now, and there are whispers, sort of increased rumors that CFIUS could come out with recommendations either to block the app entirely, or as they often do when they perceive a security threat, force a sale of TikTok's U.S. assets to what they consider to be um, a more benevolent, aka American company. But that's all just kind of in the rumor mill. It is still under active review by the federal government. Yeah, the Americans are welcome to uh, spy on me watching a person <laughs> pushing a goose through Target in a stroller. But oh, why are which all is your a real example of a video. <laughs> This is amazing, Haley. We're learning so much about you. There are some real rabbit holes that one can and uh, literal, literal rabbit holes, rabbit holes yeah. that one can uh, <laughs> find themselves uh, in the midst of on TikTok. But okay, so in light of all of this, and I love that we're kind of getting into 
some trade law with a law here. Oh yeah, but throwback. Where where does this leave the Montana suits? We are learning a lot about Haley, and perhaps allegedly, <laughs> so too is the Chinese government. But we don't we don't know <laughs> that for sure. We'll see. We'll see what comes out. So the most likely path for these suits is it'll follow some. It'll follow the same basic beats. This was filed in Montana federal court, by the way. It's not a state court issue, but it's it, it is examining the state's authority to make these policy decisions. I would imagine it's fair to predict there will be, much like there were in the in the suits about Trump's action some years ago, there will be movements for an injunction and see if the if the suits can continue on their merits. One thing I'll be interested to see is whether the court can or will rule quickly on whether a state has the authority to make some kind of national security determination. But otherwise, I would say we're probably in for another protracted battle, uh, presuming that this the bill does not get unwound and it doesn't and it doesn't seem like it will. And so, you know, all of this also happens, you know, in the looming shadow of a potential national ban or some further national action pending this CFIUS review that I already mentioned. So um, early days for the Montana suits, but definitely a lot on our plate still uh, with the with the TikTok question. in our show is something offbeat. And uh, I think we have one that's, uh, I would consider relatable this week. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. We're dealing, I'll just, I'm not going to bury the lead here. We're dealing with the formatting of legal documents, which may sound boring, except of course, for the times that it gets you in trouble with the judge. And that's what's going on here with attorneys for Amazon, um, who are, like many attorneys often are, they are eager to get the other side to foot a legal bill. And Amazon's lawyers were recently rebuffed in their efforts to secure a $3.2 million fee payment in this uh, long-running patent fight, all of because of uh, what seem like pretty minor formatting problems. But the judges tend to take uh, a pretty firm line here. And I'll just, uh, I'll get us through some of the particulars here because I want to get to our own document formatting misadventures, which oh, is really absolutely. the entire pretense of this, of this segment. So some years back, Amazon prevailed in litigation started by a company called Personal Web Technologies, which had sued Amazon for the infringement of cloud computing patents. The infringement claims were found to be completely baseless, and Amazon has spent the past several years trying to get uh, this other company, Personal Web, to foot its legal bills. It's had some success already. They've obtained uh, more than $5 million in fee payments from the other side. But a California judge turned away the company's, and this is crucial, a 16-page bid to get uh, about $3 million more in fee payments, basically saying that they just messed up the entire formatting of it all. Here's a quote from the judge. First, a motion for fees may be no more than 10 pages. Second, all footnotes must be double-spaced. And this is when I think we get into relatable territory, but not necessarily because where attorneys often get into trouble with document formatting is that they're going too long and judges are always fighting back against attorneys being long-winded, being too extensive with the citations. Let's keep it simple. In my academic career, I don't know about you guys, and we can kind of open the floor here, I had the opposite problem. I was always trying to beef up 
my papers by bringing the margins in a little bit rather than trying to beef it up. I oh, presume yeah. there's been some kind of struggle in this regard from, oh, from one or both of you. So many, so many struggles. I have struggles. a lot to say on this. Haley, you go first and then I'll, I'll, I'll sing some beats Ooh. on this. I have, I have a few different thoughts, actually. <laughs> I, yeah, I'll just throw out, I was, so I double majored in journalism and international relations. And I found it deeply frustrating that on the one hand, I was being trained to write as succinctly as possible. Mm-hmm. And then I would go, you know, take this political science class or whatever, and they would be like, no, we want 15 <laughs> pages on something that could be said in two paragraphs. Let's go. Amazing. <laughs> Different styles so, colliding. That does make sense. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely over here messing with margins, with spacing, with font sizes. If you, if you had a smart professor, they would be like, all right, here's the spacing. Yep. Here's the font size. Here That's are the right. margins. But if you don't have a smart professor, <laughs> it's a free for all. I'm gonna do what I can. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Haley, I like your approach. So I have a couple of thoughts that just immediately hit me in in hearing this this tale from these attorneys. First is that I do have a friend who I recently had seen a paper from uh, school days. And one of the notes from a professor was about the formatting of the footnotes. And that made me laugh because the story is about that. Only it was because they were like centered instead of like left aligned. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's an easy thing to mess up and then not figure out how to fix it properly and just be like, I guess I'm just turning this yeah. in like this. I, 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 I don't know. So I think that's very funny that there's so many ways to mess it up. But me personally, Alex, I, I guess it shows that I went to law school because I was always the one who was like, can I mess with this because I wrote too much and I need to make it uh, I thought that this might be the case for you. I didn't want to put you yep. on blast. No, but like, it's fine. <laughs> you Look. do have like some Hermione Granger, maybe do we, <laughs> do we remind the teacher that you he or what? she forgot to give us homework vibes? Oh, no. I really do. I hate to say you're right, Alex, <laughs> but you are. In well, fact, you're so right that my favorite Harry Potter like <laughs> magical thing is in book three when she has the time turner where she can take more classes. Of course, yeah. That's how deep my nerddom goes. That I'm like, you know what would be cool in this magical world where you can have anything you can think of? A thing that you use to learn more. Yeah, I'm the worst. <laughs> um, so I very much had that experience where I was like, ah, oh, this was supposed to be 10 pages, but I've got 11 great pages here. Let's mess with some margins and see what we can do because killing my darlings is tough. So yeah. I've gotten better at it over the years, but yeah. definitely in college. Journalism sure that. beats that out of you, I got to say. Yeah. You become unmarried to your written word very quickly. You know, the other thing where I have found this in my own life, and you guys might identify more with this one, you reach a certain point in your career and having your resume fit on one page becomes a real challenge. That's so a good point. I've definitely like messed with some margins trying to be like, one more bullet point. Like, I just, I feel like yeah. you need to know this. I have a couple of stray thoughts here and then we can and then we can get out of here. First of all, I just think it's funny that in terms of this case that we're talking about, it's very funny to me that I mean this this case has been going on for like 5 or 6 years or something and as near as I can tell there have been no problems with like exceeding page limits in any of the other multitude of filings that have been made, but as soon as it comes time for the attorneys to get their stuff, they they <laughs> cannot they cannot be held back. It's like of course, ten pages. No, bro, we need sixteen pages. <laughs> um, second of all, my uh, 
my most shameless uh, attempt to beef up my page count, again, the opposite problem that these attorneys have. In high school, I don't even remember what the topic of the paper was, but one time I began a paper with, I often began with like a humorous anecdote or a joke. And I, sure. and I, and I started out with the old joke about the polar bear who walks into the bar and the bartender says, uh, you know, what are you having? And the polar bear goes, I'll have a whiskey and soda. And then the bartender says, what's with the big pause? Oh, boy. Oh, oh boy. When I oh, wrote so it you, out. But listen, oh. when I wrote it out, the entire first page was just a long ellipsis. Oh, of yes. The, of the That's pause. That's so smart. Uh, okay. My Love English it. teacher was like, listen, we all know what's going on here. Uh, I'm not going to dock you this time because it's pretty funny. But don't make a habit of this thing. Oh, and I was my like, God. All right, you found like the perfect hack where you made it funny enough that you got away with it. That's yeah, pretty good. I mean, he he had been around the block. I mean, he'd he'd seen all the tricks. And he was like, <laughs> I never saw this one before. And so it was creativity, A plus. Sort of, yeah, sort of sort of begrudgingly let me slide. Anyway, let's tighten up those formatting uh tactics and all that stuff. You know what? That let's goes for all of us. Let's take that note as like, let's tighten up this podcast, guys. We gotta yeah. go. We gotta get out of here. We're done. We've said enough. I'm gonna cut myself off. Sounds good. See you guys next week. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader. Our contributing reporters this week, Lauren Berg, Katie Bueller, Philip Vance, and Jasmine Boyce. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Mercano. If you like Pro Se, it would really help us out if you left a written review, five stars, and that's how other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. And we'll see you back here next week. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>